4, chapter 13, it says this. The members of the council, this is the Jewish ruling council, were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. For they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. Now, when they say ordinary men with no special training, that was not a compliment. Okay, that's, that's not, that's, they're, they're not speaking highly of Peter and John in this moment. Uh, the Jewish council took great pride in their educational background, all the preparation that they had done, their pedigree that came associated with that. And they felt that it gave them the right to speak, the right to rule, uh, the right to dictate. These men had none of that. They had not earned the right in their minds to speak. And so when they call them ordinary men with no special training, they are looking down their noses at Peter and John. Now here's how the voice translation translates this verse. Now the leaders were surprised and confused. They looked at Peter and John and realized they were typical peasants, uneducated, utterly ordinary fellows with extraordinary confidence. The leaders recognize them as companions of Jesus. So what we have is this. Here's a simple summary of what we're looking at in this fourth chapter of Acts. The Jewish leaders were amazed by the boldness of Peter and John. That's number one. They are taken aback. They are completely just blown away by the boldness of Peter and John. Number two, they weren't impressed with their background. Not in the slightest bit. Peter and John didn't have anything to brag about with regard to their background. And thirdly, they realized that they had been with Jesus. That's the basic framework of what we're going to be looking at today. So how did they know they had been with Jesus? What was, what was the signs? What was the indicators to this Jewish ruling council that they had been with Jesus. It wasn't in their education because they had no formal religious training at all. It wasn't in their credentials or titles because they had none. It wasn't in their religious pedigree, which meant everything in the time of Jesus. Who, what rabbi had you studied under? What rabbi had he studied under? What was your lineage of you know, tradition and pedigree that you could point to? They didn't have one. The impressive thing about the disciples was the spirit-filled boldness that was born out of knowing the resurrected Jesus. Let me say that again for you. The impressive thing about the disciples was the spirit-filled boldness that was born out of knowing the resurrected Jesus. And one of the most important words in that statement is resurrected. It was the resurrected Jesus that made the difference in the lives of the disciples. You see, they had been with Jesus for years, hadn't they? They had followed Jesus around. They were a part of his ministry. They were a part of his miraculous ministry. They were a part of his teaching ministry. They, they walked around and served and did what Jesus did and lived with him for years during his ministry. But for the first three days after Jesus was crucified, how would you describe the disciples? They weren't anything to write home about, were they? I mean, they had gone into hiding. Uh, the fishermen had gone back to fishing. They were depressed. They were despondent. They were disillusioned. And it wasn't simply being with Jesus that had completely revolutionized their lives. It was being with the resurrected Jesus that had done that. 
You have to understand how critical the resurrection is in this process of transformation in the lives of the disciples and now through the centuries in our lives as well. It was the resurrected Jesus that made the difference. It was the glorified Jesus that made the difference. Jesus was the Son of God, fully God, fully man, when he was here doing his teaching ministry. He performed the miraculous. Here's the thing. The disciples, when they you know, taught, when you look at, read through all the book of Acts, they had powerful teaching moments. They had powerful miraculous moments. They did what Jesus had done. What sets Jesus apart from his followers is not the miracles, it's not the teaching, it's the resurrection. That's what set Jesus apart. Let me set the scene here for what we just read about uh, in, with regard to the Jewish council and their response to Peter and John. Peter and John have just healed a crippled man at the temple. Okay, so just the same kind of thing that Jesus used to get in trouble for, now they're getting in trouble for it. When a crowd gathers after they've healed this man, Peter seizes the moment to preach a gospel message. Hard-hitting, just nails them right between the eyes. And after they're arrested and now thrown in jail, Peter addresses the religious leaders and he sets them straight. So it's not just the crowds that Peter's hitting with the truth, now he's addressing the religious leaders, the theocracy of the day, and he's setting their, them straight as well. He gives them both barrels from the truth shotgun. And he does not hold back. And when you're thinking about the speech that he gave and about what he said, more on that in a second, we'll cover some of the content of what he said to them. It helps to remember one key fact about Peter in this moment as he's addressing them. He is standing in front of murderers. He's standing in front of murderers. These are the men who conspired to kill Jesus just a few weeks earlier. These are the men who, put, who had Jesus arrested, tried, convicted, and executed on a Roman cross. These are the people who were behind that. Miracle-working Jesus, Son of God Jesus, they executed him. And now Peter is letting them have it. And he doesn't back down not one inch. I can see why the Jewish ruling council was surprised and confused by the boldness that they saw in Peter and John. And Peter clearly calls them out for what they did and pointed out God's statement that he made about Jesus in verse 10. Listen, listen to verse 10 in Acts chapter 4. Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God has raised from the dead. The man you crucified, but whom God has raised from the dead. How did God make his pronouncement about Jesus? The resurrection. God put his stamp of approval on Jesus. Yes, in his baptism, as God spoke from heaven, said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But really the final seal on Jesus as God's son came through the resurrection. And we've got a long way to go this morning. Uh, but think about it. The disciples were changed forever. How? Through the resurrection. God made a declaration about Jesus. How? Through the resurrection. We cannot overstate the importance of or the significance of the resurrection.
You just can't do it. It is the, the, the linchpin. It ties everything together for our faith. If the resurrection is not true, our faith crumbles. Our faith is worthless without the resurrection. It's just not possible to overstate how important the resurrection is. And so Peter wraps up his speech to the religious leaders with this bombshell in Acts 4 verse 12. Here we go. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Drop the mic, exit stage left, Peter's done. Now, he just gets done in, in verse 10 telling them whom you killed and whom God raised from the dead. Now he says there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which be, we must be saved. I mean, this is a no holds barred. This is absolute. This is the, the UFC title bout of speaking from Peter. He is just putting them in their place. Now, there's a saying that says that a crisis never made any man. It only reveals what he already is. Maybe you've heard that before, but we don't, we don't you know, a, a crisis is not going to help reshape us. It just reveals what's already inside. If you're going through a crisis and you haven't prepared yourself, you, you're, you haven't developed your character to the point where you could stand up underneath that or developed a dependence on God to the point where you could stand up underneath that, you're not going to do well in that situation. In this case, in this case the crisis of their arrest revealed the truth about Peter and John. And the religious leaders couldn't figure them out. They just couldn't wrap their minds around what was standing in front of them and challenging them. Nobody challenged them. They couldn't deny the healing. They couldn't deny their boldness. Why in the world were they not intimidated by the Jewish council? Everyone else is. Nobody dares question our authority. And yet here's these two peasants with no religious pedigree whatsoever standing up in front of all the people and challenging us. How could these uneducated, ordinary fellows make this kind of impact? Why were they not intimidated by their arrest? How could they dare to speak so freely? What was their secret? They couldn't figure it out. And when the religious leaders considered all the facts, they came to one simple conclusion about Peter and John. These men had been with Jesus. And we know it was the resurrected Jesus that made the difference in the lives of Peter and John. It was the truth of the resurrection that changed everything for them. They had gone from fear to faith, from cowardice to boldness. They had completely been transformed by the power of Jesus and his resurrection. And this is hugely important for us to think about today. Why is it important? Just take a look around. I mean, all around us in our nation, in our culture, we see signs that the impact of Christianity on our culture is weakening every day. It's certainly not getting stronger. Our influence is waning. Our influence is becoming less and less impacting on the direction of our culture. And we wonder, why is it that Christianity or Christians specifically have lost our influence in society. And I think this story offers us a very, very clear answer as to why. You see, the early Christians turned the world upside down because they had a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ who had risen from the dead. That's, that's it. 
They had a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ who had risen from the dead. And they went out on the other side of that and transformed their world. That single fact explains the boldness of the first generation of believers who took the gospel from Jerusalem all the way across the Roman Empire. See, they didn't fit into the ordinary categories of religion. Religion is about rules. Religion is about learning and information. Religion is about structure. It was more than just knowledge. It was more than just a few prayers uh, that you went through the motions and did. It was more than religion as a hobby that you just kind of did because it was culturally expected of you. What they had was something that produced a dynamic power in them that transformed ordinary men into bold witnesses for Christ. And it certainly had nothing to do with a degree or religious education. These Jewish leaders had encountered Jesus. They had been there. They had been part of the crowds watching Jesus. They'd encountered him, but they killed him. So what was the difference? And here's what I want you to think about. And it's, a, it's just a slight word change, but it makes all the difference in the world. It is dangerous to be around Jesus and not be with Jesus. It is dangerous to be around Jesus and not be with Jesus. You see, there's a difference between being around Jesus and being with Jesus. There's a difference between being around Christians and being with Jesus. There's a difference between being around Christian events and being with Jesus. There's a difference between being around the church and being with Jesus. America is filled with people today who fit this description. We live in a culture where Jesus is well known. He's talked about, he's sung about, we celebrate his birth in some parts of the country. It is culturally acceptable and even culturally expected to go to church, at least occasionally. You know, you've heard me use this phrase before, you know, here in North Texas, where even the atheists are Southern Baptist. Church is part of our culture here. And some of our churches in America are filled with people who are around Jesus, but they are not with Jesus. They are around Jesus, but they are not with him. The disciples had been with Jesus and they knew him intimately. And when I talk about being with Jesus, that's what I mean. They know him intimately. His desires have become their desires. They are following closely where he is leading. And that changed everything for them. Even their enemies here could see the difference in them that Christ has made in their lives. So here's the first question I want to ask of you this morning. Something I want you to think about. Have you been with Jesus enough to allow him to make a difference in your life? Have you been with Jesus enough to allow him to make a difference in your life? Not around Jesus, with Jesus. Not in church, not at events where people are talking about him, not around people who are with him. But have you personally spent enough quality time, alone time with Jesus that your life will never be the same? And if you are sitting there and you know the answer is no to that question, you have not spent enough time to make a real difference in your life. Or even if you have to hesitate to answer because you are not sure, if that's where you're at, 
Make a decision right now. In this moment, in the middle of my message this morning, please make a decision. Make the decision to know him. Make the decision to be with him instead of just around him. To get alone and to pray and to begin a consistent lifestyle of regularly encountering the resurrected Jesus. That it would transform the way you live. Don't let one more day pass you by. Don't continue down the dangerous road that the religious leaders found themselves on. Don't let the incredible opportunity that you have slip past you to know, to really, truly, and transformationally know Jesus. Because otherwise, you could fall into the same trap that the Jewish ruling council had fallen into. They were around him. They were around the truth. And they had made themselves feel like they were okay. They had convinced themselves. They had inoculated themselves to the truth. And I don't want you to fall into that trap. I don't want you to go down that road of missing out on real transformational relationship with Jesus not just because I want you to go to heaven, although that's my primary consideration is I want you to experience eternal life with Jesus in heaven and that only is reserved. We talked a little bit about this pre-service. That is only because of what he has done in us. It's only through being with Jesus that we get to experience eternity with him. But also in addition to that, I want the transformational life now for you that comes through knowing him and being with him. All right, back to Peter and John. You know what was amazing about these two guys? They were world changers and yet remained humble. I mean, think about it. They were transforming their, the entire landscape of their culture and yet they remained humble. And them being humble was not always the case, was it? Listen to this in Mark chapter nine. After they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing out on the road? Now, side note here, Jesus doesn't ask casual questions, does he? I mean, Jesus doesn't just, hey, what were you guys talking about today? No, this isn't Jesus making small talk. Jesus has a point and a purpose to him asking, hey, what were you talking about on the road today? Let's continue. But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. So this is, this is their pedigree. This is their heritage, if you will. They were arguing with one another about who was the greatest of his disciples. Who was the greatest follower of Jesus? No, I follow Jesus better than you. He loves me more than he loves you. Are you kidding me? That is who they were and where they've come from. And now they're standing up, changing the world, and they're doing it with humility. Jesus had to knock their heads together more than once and remind them that they weren't all that as they argued about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But here, they are not standing there tooting their own horn. We are not told that Peter and John said, well, we have been with Jesus. No, that would be true. And it, it also could have come across as prideful. They didn't say anything like that. They didn't refer back to, hey, you know, you need to listen to us because we, we lived with the guy for three years. And, and we've heard him. We've been around him more than any of y'all. No, they let their actions speak for themselves. They let the truth about Jesus, the gospel, speak for itself. Remember that Peter and John didn't go to the temple that day looking for a confrontation. They'd gone to the temple to pray. They didn't go to perform a healing. 
but the opportunity presented itself and they did. They didn't go there to preach, although they took advantage of that opportunity as well. And they certainly didn't go there to get themselves erect, arrested. Now, I'm not saying they took advantage of that opportunity, but it happened. Now, this is nothing. Them going to the temple is nothing more than ordinary obedience. They were obeying. And here's what I want you to understand. This is so important to grasp. When godly people live in obedience, it opens the door for the miraculous to happen. When godly people live in obedience, that's it. It opens the door for the miraculous to happen. Miracles happen when you obey. When you walk the path that God has illuminated in front of you, miracles happen. They had gone to the temple to pray. They were walking in obedience. When you do the simple day-to-day -day tasks that he has asked his followers to live out, miracles happen. And, and sometimes it also gets you into trouble, as we see from Peter and John. With people, it gets you into trouble with people who haven't yet been with Jesus, okay? Peter and John were doing what Christians should always do. Listen to the words of Peter later on in the New Testament. This is Peter later on. He says in 1 Peter 3.15, Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. Obey. Uh, and if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Now get this. That's exactly what Peter was doing this day, right? He'd gone to the temple, worship Christ as Lord of your life. He'd gone to the temple to pray and honor Jesus. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Well, that's exactly what Peter was doing. Yes, we should listen to and obey this verse in 1 Peter 3.15 because it's in the Bible, right? It's in the Bible. You need to obey it. But another reason is that Peter walked the talk, didn't he? Peter telling us to do this is not just him just throwing something out saying, hey, here's a truth grenade. Let me lob it towards you. You need to do this. No, he's describing how he lived his life. He walked the talk. He and John were ready to explain what they believed, to explain where their hope came from. They gave an answer and it got them in trouble, didn't it? Acts 4.2 even pinpoints the exact issue that got them in trouble with the Jewish council. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus, there is a resurrection of the dead. The resurrection is ultimately and supremely powerful. And powerful people are often threatened by any power, power that is greater than theirs. They were threatened. Their power base was crumbling around them as, as Jesus' followers carried on what he had begun. Peter and John simply told the truth. You crucified Jesus, God raised him from the dead. That is bold. That is powerful. That is courage on steroids. To do that in front of the people who had just a few weeks before sentenced Jesus to death. You know what else it is? Ordinary obedience. That's what they were doing. They were obeying. Okay, now buckle up. Here's what happened as a result. Get this. Acts 4 verse 4, many of the people who heard their message believed it. So the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000 followers. 5,000! 5, Thousands of people that day decided to follow Jesus. We had the day of Pentecost where Peter went out, preached. About 3,000 people were added that day. If you do the math, now we've got about 2,000 more becoming followers. 2,000 more surrendering their lives to Christ. Thousands of people made the decision to stop being around Jesus and to start being with Jesus.
Guys, that's a reason to get excited, church. Reading that kind of story should excite you because that's not Jesus doing it. That's Jesus' followers who are just living a life of obedience. And I want you to understand something. That's the kind of impact and influence that God has called us to have today. Imagine what would happen if every person who called Trilogy home started living with Jesus. Not around Jesus, but with Jesus. Living in obedience to what he's asked us to do. Guys, the 380 quarter would never be the same. The world would never be the same. You see, I believe with all my heart, the greatest obstacle to the world being one to Christ isn't secularism. It isn't our culture going in a new and different direction than historic Christianity that America has followed for almost all of its existence. No, I don't believe that's the greatest obstacle. In fact, it isn't even the devil that's the greatest obstacle to America coming to faith in Christ. It's followers of Jesus not living in obedience to Jesus. Guys, that's the biggest obstacle. There are too many people who call themselves Christians who aren't living in obedience to Jesus, who don't, want to, don't know really what it means to be with Jesus. They're just around him. Look at the sequence of events that we see from Peter and John. Obedience, going to the temple to pray. Miracle, healing this man. Witnessing, just sharing as the opportunity presented itself. Thousands saved, thrown in jail, boldness on the other side. No wonder their enemies here said these men have been with Jesus. Shaky Peter has become as solid as you can get. I mean, when Jesus transforms a life, the change will be evident to everyone else. Get this, when Jesus transforms a life, the change will be evident to everyone else. That's a great place for either an amen or an uh-oh. One of the two. It should make you either amen or uh-oh because it's a powerful truth and we need to celebrate the transformation Jesus has done in us and the influence that it gives us to see him transform others as well. We need to celebrate that. But if the change in your life is not evident to others, it could be that you've been around Jesus but not with Jesus. And your life has not truly been transformed by him. That you haven't allowed him to truly change your life with resurrection power. Because even though the leaders hated what Peter said, they could not deny what Christ had done in him. And that's the key. You know, we think when we, when we are witnesses for Christ, when we tell the story of what God has done in us, we have to have all these answers and theological, you know, uh, treatises and be able to correct people and argue and debate. And we need to be able to, you know, go all Ben Shapiro on them and have all the right answers for every question that comes. And that's simply not the case, guys, because he's, they're going to disagree with what you say. No matter how eloquently you put it, no how many scriptures you're able to quote, no matter how many eloquent apologetical discourses you're able to articulate, you're not going to convince some people. But they will never be able to deny what Christ has done in you. That is the most powerful tool you have in your arsenal. That's the most powerful weapon you have available is your story, your testimony. 
That's part of why I, I called Trilogy Trilogy is because I want everybody to understand the concept of story, of testimony, is what is our primary means of winning the world to Christ. What has God done in you? I mean, even their enemies knew that Peter and John had been with Jesus. You cannot pay a higher compliment to a follower of Jesus. And yet, that's kind of what some Christians fear, isn't it? Of being discovered, of being labeled as one of those Christians. Of having to do what Peter said every one of us needs to be able to do, and that is explain who we are and what Jesus has done for us. Guys, think about it. If you, if you just kind of step back from yourself for a second and think about that statement, explaining who we are and what Jesus has done for us shouldn't really be that hard, should it? And then you re-enter yourself and you put yourself in front of somebody else trying to explain who I am and what Jesus has done for me. Now all of a sudden it gets a whole lot more complicated. But the only way to overcome that fear, ready, wait for it, be with Jesus. That's how we overcome it. That's how we get more comfortable with it, is being with Jesus. So what are the signs of someone who has been with Jesus? Obviously, we want something from Jesus to rub off on us, right? Exactly what does that look like? I find it hard to improve on John 1.14. Listen to what John wrote. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. Another translation, full of grace and truth. Now, anyone, anyone can be truthful, okay, some of the time, or loving some of the time. Jesus was filled to overflowing with grace and truth. He spoke the truth with grace. He showed grace in truth. And Jesus never had to choose between truth and grace. Think about that. He never had to choose between the two because he was both of those always. Those who follow him will show that as well. We will have lives filled with humility, honesty, approachability, kindness under pressure, truth-telling when it would be easier to lie. Paul described this same kind of life, didn't he? Galatians 5, and 23. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. A life like this looks and feels like Jesus. There was a missionary friend of mine who was just this, he was an incredible man of God. He really was. And I remember one of our mutual friends saying this about him as we were talking about him and just the kind of life that he lived and his character. And my, my friend said this, whenever he enters the room, I feel a little closer to heaven. Now that's, that's kind of a great statement to make about somebody, isn't it? Maybe you know somebody like that. Just when you're around them, you just feel a little bit closer to heaven. A man or a woman filled with grace and truth draws you closer to the Lord, whether they are talking or listening, laughing or crying, standing or sitting, following or leading. It doesn't matter. No matter what they're doing, you just feel this presence. And we need to strive to become those kinds of people. So how do we grow that kind of fruit in our lives? Short answer, be with Jesus. But let me give you a little more than that. I mean, this sort of life, comes about mostly through people and pain, and usually painful people. <laughs> um, as I think about the Christians that I have known, the ones I'm most amazed by are those who have gone through suffering and they've come out the other side still singing. 
the best Christians I know have proved the truth of Job 23 verse 10. It says, but he knows where I am going. And when he tests me, I will come out as pure as gold. That was Job's perspective on the trials he was going through. There are no shortcuts to a life of tested gold. You've got to go through the furnace so that God can refine your character. Until then, it's all theory. It's got to be tested. Uh, and after the furnace, you know from experience the power of Christ to deliver you and to walk through it with you. As Charles Spurgeon said, any fool can sing in the sunlight. <laughs> you know, it's, it's easy to sing when things are going great, but will you still have that song in your heart when you're going through trials and when you come out the other side? What will you do when you lose your job, when your, your son is in jail, when your marriage collapses, when the, your church splits, when the cancer returns, when your best friend betrays you? What do you do when you're thrown in jail for your faith? What will you do when trouble comes? If you're Peter and John, you'll be a witness for Jesus. When trouble comes, even your enemies will see the difference that Christ has made in your life. So where do we begin that? As I was working on this message, I came across a sermon on the same passage of scripture in Acts 4 that Charles Spurgeon preached in 1855. I guess 160 years ago uh, that Spurgeon preached this sermon. And in the sermon, he covers the why and the where of becoming more like Jesus. And in the last section, he challenges his readers to know Christ personally, to seek to be like him, to be with him, in other words. But then he adds one more thing. If we would be more like Christ, we need to seek more of the Holy Spirit. If we would be more like Christ, we need to seek more of the Holy Spirit. And I, I want to read it to you in his words, because I think he says this so well. Lastly, as the best advice I can give, Seek more of the Spirit of God, for this is the way to become Christ-like. Vain are all your attempts to be like him till you have sought his Spirit. So take your heart, not cold as it is, or not stony as it is by nature, but put it into the furnace. There let it be molten, and after that it can be turned like wax to the seal and fashioned into the image of Jesus Christ." If we want to be like Jesus, we have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That, that is why Jesus instilled that and, and really commanded his disciples. Guys, don't go anywhere. Wait, receive this gift. We will not become Christ-like by accident. It doesn't happen by osmosis or by hanging around church and going through all the religious motions. Jesus knew this, and after the resurrection, he told his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit, to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit to be given, to wait in Jerusalem and to pray until the gift had been given. And you know the rest of the story. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was outpoured in a world-shaking way, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they went out and they changed the world. 3,000 people got saved that day. But here's the thing. What did they do to receive that gift? They were with Jesus. They stayed in Jerusalem. They gathered in the upper room. They prayed. And I want to repeat a statement I made way at the beginning of the message. The early Christians turned the world upside down because they had a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ who had risen from the dead. That's the only way trilogy is going to impact our community the way we know we're supposed to. 
That's the only way you are going to make a difference in your workplace. That's the only way you're going to reach your neighbor. That's the only way you're going to see your family transformed and healed. And so I'm calling on us as a church family to be with Jesus. Yes, for each one of us to set aside time to seek his face, to be with him personally, no question. But also for us to set aside time to be with him as a church family. And so starting May 1st, we're going to be gathering the first and the third Saturday mornings of every month for prayer. From 9 to 10 a.m., Saturday morning, the first and the third Saturdays, we will worship, we will pray, we'll intercede for the lost, but most importantly, we'll be with Jesus. And this first gathering will be at the Perino's house in Cross Oak Ranch, May 1st, 9 a.m. Uh, the event's already in, uh, in the app. You can find it there. And I want you to prioritize this. And I understand there's some of you that Saturday mornings just don't work for you. I get that. And, and I, you know, I, I wish you could be there. And I know that some of you just can't because of other commitments and work schedules and what have you. But if you have the availability for an hour, a couple times a month, to come and join with your church family, to be with Jesus together. We need to do it because it's gonna make all the difference in our lives, in the life of our church, and in the life of the community around us. Here's why it's so critical. We are not going to become like Jesus by trying harder. Without the Holy Spirit, we will stay exactly as we are. You can't make yourself more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit does that work within us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit of God, is at work within us, empowering us to be his witnesses, making us more like Jesus. We are not there yet, but we are on the way. This is our challenge. This is our calling. This is our prayer. Let Jesus be seen in us. Let others meet the resurrected Jesus through us. Let the Holy Spirit fill us with grace and truth and power. Let the whole world know by the way we live that we have been with Jesus. And let the power of God write new stories in the lives of thousands on the other side. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the power of your resurrection. And that power did not just raise you from the dead, it raised us and brought us from death to life and transforms us and empowers us and continues to empower us every day that we're with you. And Jesus, I ask that you would help us to truly be with you, not just around you, not just going through the motions, not just having a form of godliness, but denying its power. But Jesus, let us live lives that are filled with your Holy Spirit, let us seek you, let us pursue you, let us be with you, let us wait on you to receive that gift. And Jesus, would you baptize us in your Holy Spirit, empower us to be the witnesses that you've called us to be, to go into a world and let it be evident to all that we have been with Jesus because our lives are different. God, do it in us as individuals, but do it in us as a church as we begin having regular prayer gatherings a couple times a month to be with you, to seek you, to intercede for the lost and to seek your face. God, I pray that you would continue to grow us and change us, but God, transform our community. God, we do not want to be a church who meets in a community. We want to be a church who goes into the community and sees lives transformed by the power of Christ at work within us. God, let it happen for your glory. 
We thank you for what you're going to do. We commit ourselves to being with you and to following you every step of the way. It's in Jesus' incredible name we pray.